Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. And if you don't have a Bible with you tonight, you'll be able to find there's Bibles under a number of the chairs. Uh, So look in one of those chairs in front of you. You can hunt and find a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for this copy of God's Word to be our gift to you tonight and take that home with you. How y'all doing? Good. It's good to be together on Good Friday. Thanks for being here. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick, and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked, rocks were split, tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection. They entered the holy city, appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, the the Roman soldiers who were keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified. And they said, truly this man was the Son of God. Many women who had followed Jesus from Galilee and looked after Him were there watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. This is the Word of God. Would you pray with me? Father, Show us now in these moments ahead how the death of Jesus can shatter the power of difficult days and circumstances that keep us despairing and hopeless by reminding us of the good news of your delivering, resurrecting power that defeats sin and death. Do this, we ask, by your Spirit. Anoint this place with the power of your Spirit. Fill us afresh with your Spirit. Yes, and very amen. In Jesus' name. We're jumping right to the end of a story about the life of Jesus, the Messiah. In my Bible, Matthew's story is 45 pages long. Where we're at in this text is at page 44. 
So if you haven't read this story, I'd encourage you to do so over the next couple of days to remind yourself of the context. Now, most of us are familiar with the story of the death of Jesus, but some of us only in a cursory way. Or maybe we've forgotten some of the details and and maybe we haven't soaked in them deeply or we haven't done that recently. And by that I mean to soak in the details of the story of Jesus deeply. By that I mean moving beyond the facts to move into the lived reality of these words, working to imaginatively enter into the story along with the central characters Furthermore, many of us are unfamiliar with the overall story of God to save the world found in the entirety of the Bible, which means we lose a bit of the meaning of what is going on in this bit of the story, which is why we do this, right? It's why we gather together. It's why we have a season for 40 days that we call Lent. It's why we gather on Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday to remember the story, to tell each other the story, to dig into the details, to ask our Father by the Spirit to show us things that maybe we have never seen before. And most importantly, we do this to get our gaze and our attention fixed firmly on Jesus. with the hopes that we will grow one step closer to him tonight. Matthew helps us in his telling of the story, if we'll let him. And we're going to pick it up so very close to the end now. Jesus has already been on the cross for about three hours at this moment in the story. Since 9 a.m. that morning. Let that sink in for a moment. And what I want us to look at as our Savior hangs there is something that I hadn't seen in the story before concerning the scream of Jesus, which I believe is also a prayer by Jesus as he dies on the cross. Matthew sets the scene for us. He tells us that from noon until three in the afternoon, there was a darkness over the whole land, verse 45. Now, you need to understand something about this darkness. This this isn't just any darkness, I don't believe. This, This isn't like a severely overcast day. It's not that there was some kind of sandstorm or a solar eclipse. This is a darkness that in just a moment is going to serve as part of a host of supernatural events happening in the created world that will change the belief of a Roman centurion and his fellow soldiers. So Matthew isn't wasting words. Everything he's pointing out is serving the story, theologically informing us of what is going on, what is necessary for us to understand the importance of the death of this man. And this darkness is a sign of the presence of God. And that's hugely important for what we're going to see in a moment in Jesus' scream So mark that. It it is a sign of the presence and therefore the testimony of God. Through this darkness and other events that we'll get to in a moment, God is testifying about what is happening here. This has always been God's way throughout the whole story. 
We see it most powerfully in another act of God's salvation when he brought darkness as a sign of judgment at the rescue of another son, the nation of Israel. We read in Exodus 10 how God brought a, quote, darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that could be felt, a thick darkness, one person not being able to see another. And now here at the cross of his son, once again, God brings a darkness over the land for three hours. A darkness that could be felt. Can you imagine the, the unease of this darkness? The growing fear as the darkness does not lift? Our after hour after hour as God frowns upon the scene displayed before him as the sins of all mankind and all of history are being laid on his son, the storehouse of evil for all time heaped upon the shoulders of his boy, Jesus, who is hanging before the crowd and hanging before a holy and just God. I wonder if it was quiet. I wonder if the mocking had ceased because of the darkness. If the jeers had evaporated and mouths were shut up as people instead quietly murmured about what was happening and why. And then into this three-hour silence, Jesus screams. Eli! Eli! Lama Sabachthani! My God! My God, why have you abandoned me? He had been so quiet up to that point. Through the betrayal, the arrest, the trials, the beatings, Jesus had remained so calm, so poised, so fully in control. He had, he had barely spoken and he certainly had not raised his voice. But now this, a scream into the darkness. Why? Because the darkness and the scream is showing us what is happening to Jesus. The scream is declaring his agony. Not physically, though that's true. Not mentally, though that's likely there. But spiritually and relationally, the darkness and the scream are helping us understand what is happening in the death of Jesus. Tim Keller notes, we have to remember that so often when the biblical writers throughout the story describe lostness, when they describe eternal judgment, when they describe hell even, they describe it as the outer darkness. Because the presence of God is something that our hearts and our souls need like a flower needs the sun. If this very second the sun went out on this earth, we would all die. We could not survive without the sun. 
And we cannot survive without the sun of God's presence. Jesus cannot survive without the warm sun of God's presence, which he has enjoyed for all of eternity. And so when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? What he is saying is that his soul is coming apart. He is being torn apart because he's being plunged into the outer darkness of the judgment of God. And we have to remember that I hadn't thought of this before. Keller pointed it out. The darkness of hell and the beautiful brightness of heaven are outside of of time. They are eternal and infinite. So you have to understand that when you try and understand what Jesus is suffering here. He's not been saying, if I can just hold out for three more hours, I've made it until 3 p.m. now, if I can just make it three hours more. No, you see what, what Keller is helping us to see is that Jesus in this moment is experiencing an eternal sense of the separation from God. On top of his immense physical suffering, he has the sense in this moment of being eternally lost. What is three hours to everyone else standing there is quite literally an eternity of suffering and lostness and darkness to Jesus. An infinity of suffering. Do you see why he screams? Do you understand the agony now? Oh, please. Family, this, this has been my prayer today. I, I sat at my desk praying for you and for me that these wouldn't be just words on paper for us that we would know and we would feel that we would right now in this moment that you would be pondering what he did, what he suffered for the joy set before him. He endured this, an eternity of darkness. We must It seems to me we must ponder this in such a way that I can almost hear his scream of agony in my own eardrums so that in new ways I can marvel at who my king is. And here's something else remarkable about this moment. Jesus isn't just saying anything here. This scream isn't an indicator that he has somehow now lost control, which he had been exhibiting through the calm demeanor that he'd carried up to this point. I I still think that he has complete control of his faculties because he doesn't just say something, he quotes something. And before we look at what he quotes, I I would like to take you back for a moment, okay? Can Can we just kind of step back for a moment from Jesus on the cross and we can, can we go all the way back to the beginning of the days of Jesus? Do you remember his birth? 
in a manger to Mary and Joseph? Can you bring up into your mind the, the visit of wise men as they, as they laid their gifts at the feet of this little family? And I want you to picture, use your imagination now, Jesus playing at the feet of his mother Mary as she tells him the stories of God, the, the rescues that God had accomplished and the great works that he had done to set his people free as she, as she sits by the fire with him as a toddler rehearsing the stories of the great kings, the greatest among them, David. Can you see Jesus with a little wooden sword that his father Joseph had made for him? See, here's the stories of David who, who slew his tens of thousands and wrote so many songs of praise of, of God's rescue and salvation from those who had come against him. I, I want you to see the, the beauty in your mind of a mother and a father singing those songs of David with their son, Jesus, over and over and over again. Picture Jesus joining them as just a child, learning the lyrics, planting them deep in his mind and his heart. I, I want you to watch in your mind's eye as a young boy grows into a young man who, who continues to hum the tunes. Maybe while he's swinging a hammer with his carpenter father, recalling the power of the words as he makes his own way through the ups and downs of a young man's life. The songs giving expressions to his longings and laments to his divine father, forming deep ruts of trust and faith and reliance. The scriptures cementing in his heart and soul what he knows about God, no matter what the circumstances of his life. That's what he's lived Do you see? So that now as we go back to Golgotha, back to our King Jesus on a cross, hanging, bleeding, suffering, suffocating, with his mother standing in the back of a crowd who had taught him the songs, I think he's remembering too. He thinks back to those moments and all of that scripture which is why when he screams, he screams scripture. He screams the songs that he had sung. He screams Psalm 22. Friends, as, as those who believe in God, when tragedy strikes our lives, there are at least a couple of ways that we can respond to that. Some people avoid facing the tragedy that has happened in their life because it imperils their fundamental understanding of God as one who is faithful and loving and involved. And so we have that belief about who God is and our only way to deal with the tragedy is to try and ignore the tragedy and maybe numb it through various ways so that our view of God can remain safe, but we don't deal honestly with the hardship and the grief and the pain. That's one option. Other people face the nature of what happens when a, when a tragedy or a trial comes into their lives and, and they find that their fundamental understanding of God is imperiled. So they deal with the tragedy 
they press into the reality of the hardness of the circumstances that has come into their lives. They, they accept that, but it imperils, it, it undercuts everything that they thought that they knew about God. But what if there is a path that refuses either of these things as alternatives? What if there is a way to face both sets of facts, to look directly at a tragedy that we are overwhelmed by and also stay attentive to the unchanging facts about God that we have always known and trusted? What if we could find a path that would allow us to keep believing what we already know about God and accept the, re- the reality of our present circumstances? even as we remember that the present is not all there is. Is this not the battle going on in the heart and mind of Jesus at this moment? As he is embroiled in arguably the greatest moment of suffering ever endured by a human being. A human being who has always believed in the goodness and steadfastness and love of God. And it is in this moment that a prayer that every Israelite would have prayed in just such a difficult moment in life is now prayed by the Israelite Jesus of Nazareth hanging on the cross. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance? And from my words of groaning. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes so much pleasure in him. Don't be far from me. Because distress is near. And there's no one to help. I am poured out like water and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves. And they cast lots for my clothing. Is it any wonder that this is the song that comes to Jesus' mind? And it is clear that Jesus sees his suffering declared in the psalm, excruciating suffering. Suffering increased immeasurably by this reality. You see, when When Jesus declares this deeply familiar prayer and screams abandonment, what he is not doing is saying that God has left him, for God hasn't left him. God is still present, testifying in the darkness, testifying in the earthquake, testifying in the torn veil. God is present, and it's it's that reality that makes this so incredibly hard for Jesus. John Golden Gay says it this way. Jesus was not abandoned by God in the sense that God was not present at his execution. God was there all right, as is implied by the fact that Jesus 
praise. You can't address someone who has gone off. God is watching steadfastly as Jesus is executed, suffering as profoundly in his spirit as Jesus is suffering in body and spirit. Indeed, it is hard to imagine the depth of the agony involved in watching your son be executed when you could stop it. As some of the witnesses at the execution declare, it would be appropriate for God to rescue Jesus if Jesus is really God's son. That would make perfect sense. But God doesn't do so. God instead listens to Jesus asking, why have you abandoned me? And does nothing. God's abandonment lies Not in going away, but in being present and yet doing nothing. And in this way, the words of Jesus, which are the words of David and the words of millions of God's children throughout the ages, are words that we can feel comfortable saying to. It makes it possible for us to say, Why, God? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? We we too can utter the protest. The fact that Jesus takes up the question encourages us to assume that we can ask it too. It presupposes that God is there and is listening and as was the case at the cross, God is not miles away in an antiseptic environment in heaven. He is listening and watching and suffering with us. You see, this is looking directly at the tragedy that we're facing and being honest about it. This is is accepting the reality of whatever present circumstance that you are in. But what about remaining attentive to God while all of that is happening? How can we still hold on to that, to Him, in our pain? And the answer is in the psalm. Look at the psalm, dear friends. This, you see, this is what I think Jesus knew as well. It's why he screamed this psalm. Verse 21. You answered me. <laughs> I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, Honor him. All you descendants of Israel, reveal him, revere him. For he has not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. So I will give you praise in the great assembly because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. You see, family, I think, that, I think that Jesus is holding on to both those alternatives just as David did when he first wrote this psalm in the midst of whatever suffering David was enduring, facing the adversity and not ignoring it and staying attentive to God and who he is. And Jesus, by his example in the worst circumstances that have ever or will ever face any human in the totality of history is showing us, he's showing us a way forward. 
in our suffering and our dark circumstances. You see, Jesus is saying on the one hand, I am suffering infinitely. I feel forsaken and abandoned and there's no one to help. But I think he's saying something else as well. He's saying, though God is damning me, I'm sticking with the plan. Though God is damning me, I am going to still hold on to his word. Though God is condemning me and casting me into the doubt or darkness, I will hold on because I know that in this darkness there is something that he is doing. There's something he's accomplishing. And so I'm going to hold on to the very end. Do you see? He's saying, I'm being absolutely forsaken. And he's saying, there's a purpose for this. Do you see the path that he's laying out for us? Listen, I, I don't know the kind of darkness that you are enveloped in that threatens to block out the sunshine of God's life-giving presence in your life. I, I don't know the trial that you may be in here tonight, but as a fellow human, I'm acutely aware you know, because maybe you're saying, I- I'm not in a trial. Dude, I'm fine. But maybe there's someone you know who is in a difficult circumstance. And, and because you're a human, and because you live in a broken, fallen world, this world that is never to be perfect until the return of the king, I'm fairly certain that there's going to be another time in your life when you will be in difficult straits where it may feel like the darkness of death is everywhere. And what a glory and what a providence that it is the words of a God-man being asphyxiated on a cross, his breath being taken from him as he hangs there trying to push up so he can draw breath into his lungs to scream. It is his words screamed out that inspire us to trust and inspire us to believe that even in the darkness Even when we may want to cry out with the psalmist and with Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken us? We may now turn as Jesus did and say, there is a purpose for this. I don't know what it is. There is a purpose for this. And I'm sticking with the plan. Even though it feels like we've been damned, I am holding on to his word. Even though it may feel like I am cast out, I am holding on because I know there's something God is doing. I know there's something that he's accomplishing. And I'm going to hold on to the very end. And here's the really important thing. In Jesus we have someone that we can run to who knows exactly what it's like to be in that darkness. Isn't that fantastic? Someone who looked at that prospect and the totality of what his death would mean and include, who asked, pleaded with the Father that the cup would pass from him. Someone who was feeling forsaken and was still all in with God. Someone who by his example would inspire Peter to write, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing 
good. Don't give up in the suffering. Entrust your soul. Follow Jesus. And the real beauty of this is that Jesus went into his death before his death, knowing his death wouldn't be the end. That it's not just about the present reality, but it's about a future reality. Jesus knew before his death that his death would not be the end. And he knew that because of what he knew about God. The writer to the Hebrews confirms this when he says that Jesus knew. He knew that he would proclaim the name of God in the midst of his brothers and sisters in the congregation of all of those praising God in a new heavens and a new earth, which is what was said in Psalm 22. And he knew that that would be completed in a new heavens and new earth. He knew that he would say, here I am, God, with all of your children with me. That's common. On the other side of all of our suffering, the greatest worship leader to ever exist, maybe with a a guitar, just like Paul's, is going to lead us in praise at the foot of the throne of God. And so the only question that remains is, how will we respond in our dark times? I see here tonight in a powerfully new way the power of Jesus for us. I, I see it. It can be like a greased pig at times though, can it? Oh boy, I... Because part of how I see so often is intellectually... Like it makes sense. I I hope it makes sense to you tonight that that this all coheres, the reality of this. The words make sense, right? Now what we want is for the Spirit to set the rational things I've said, I I think they're rational, these, these words to set them ablaze with belief so that when the suffering comes, You can face it in all its reality and you can hold on to God. That's what I'm praying. The next time the suffering is here, you will look and say, he knows what I'm going through. And he was abandoned so that I don't have to be abandoned. And he was in outer darkness so that I don't have to taste the darkness And I will keep entrusting my soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Paul, Julie, would you come up? That we can say to God, I know you have a purpose in this. I know you are working all things together for my good. And I believe that now is the time to be a witness to the world. Now is the time to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes because I know that he is coming. And I know that even if I am not rescued from this trial, that my ultimate rescue and salvation and future is guaranteed because Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come awake. Come awake. Come and rise up from the grave for we are one with Jesus. It's yours. This is your 
heritage. And if it's not yours, all you have to do is say, I believe, Jesus, help my unbelief.